Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. Josh Antonuccio is a musician, producer, engineer, and studio owner. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the director of Ohio University's School of Media Arts and Studies. If you believe that children are the future, as uh, Sexual Chocolate always said, or at least could use some insight into how Gen Z operates, Josh has a pretty solid perspective. Josh and I discussed the value of mentorship and how having a close friend circle has sustained him through the ups and downs of life. Josh also shares the wisdom he imparts as a father and what it means to trust the process. Everybody, please welcome Josh to the show. My name is Josh Antonuccio. I am the director of the School of Media Arts and Studies at Ohio University. And I teach as an associate professor in the music production and recording industry program. It's essentially music production and technology and the business of music. And I also am the director of our annual Music Industry Summit, which takes place on our campus each year. And our sixth annual offering is coming up April 9th and 10th of 24. Nice. How did you get into education? (laughs) I'm laughing because I've been reviewing this. I, completely out of left field, was asked to be the commencement speaker for graduation this in about three or four weeks here for fall semester. So I've been recapping in my mind the kind of David Byrne talking heads question, you know, how did I get here? So um, I kind of stumbled into education and it was in, in some ways accidental. I was running a studio. I was in a few bands, one band that had just landed a record deal with an independent label that we loved. And I was asked to be on the board for a college in our region, which I did for their music industry program, which I just started, I think, in 05. And so I reached this kind of transition point in 07, where when we got the label deal, it just was apparent I had three kids and I wasn't going to be able to go on the road. And my studio work had been cranking. So I was like, I'm going to have to really figure out a pivot here. So at the same time, one of the instructors in the college program he took a job in LA. So his job opened and somebody said, you know, maybe you should apply for that. And so I did and I got the position. And then in like two years, I was running the program. At the same time, my alma mater, where I teach now at Ohio University, saw what I was doing and said, hey, why don't you come in adjunct for us, which I was doing. But then as the other program grew, they said, hey, why don't you come and start something like that here? And so that's how I got to OU in 2013. But that it was like a complete was not on my radar, but I saw an opening. I, I and I realized I love teaching. I've always had interns in my studio. I love doing apprenticeship. I love building into people. So, yeah, that's how that happened. So circling back even further, what got you into music or what got you into production? Yeah, it's kind of an anomaly in my family. I got into music at a really early age, and I don't know, from very early on, uh, I could feel a whole world inside songs. I felt really just attracted to what was coming out of speakers, even though I couldn't put words to what I was feeling or what was doing that or why certain songs, certain artists were working. And then 
along with that, as I was getting into my teens, it turned out we had a family friend that was connected to one of the biggest concert promotion companies at the time in Pittsburgh. So I was always going to concerts. I had a direct line to the ticket office. So I'd be taking friends to shows. And so it just built from there. And then the expression of it really came when I got guitar lessons. I was always playing instruments, but could never could really find the unlock for me. And when I got my hands on a guitar in ninth grade, it was kind of game over. And then I just spent tons of time playing, playing in clubs in Pittsburgh as a high school student, doing punk clubs, practicing recording just unsolicited because i was totally in love with it right on and as someone for whom music is kind of sustained his entire career for you even working in the education space has there ever been a point when you were like eh music eh, i don't know <laughs> yeah sure i'm friends with some very well-known musicians who I've admitted as much to me, like, I don't really listen to music. I listen to podcasts, but there's still something about what they're doing that appeals to them. And I think that for me, there's maybe something similar where as soon as I think I've heard what I want to hear, I'll revisit something that really spoke to me. I'll get introduced to something new and it kind of starts all over again. And then when you're writing and you're producing, you start tapping into things where you're feeling something. It just makes you want to push in further to that. I just recently was going through Rick Rubin's book on creativity, and he's this whole thing about how, like, when you have ideas, the universe is giving you ideas, right? But if you don't take hold of them and bring them into reality, they're going to be given to somebody else that does. And there's this kind of mysterious thing that happens where the more you respond to those urges or those things you feel in music that you're writing or producing or a part of, you it's like more ideas return to you in that process. It's like a muscle gets activated that's able to put out more as a result. But if you kind of retract, I think that it does, it contracts internally in terms of what you're able to put out. So even if I feel like I hit a dry spot, usually something will hit and I'll be like, oh yeah, this is great. But in terms of listening to music, I really don't get bored. I'm endlessly intrigued. That's awesome. And you clearly still play because I'm looking behind you and see a couple of guitar necks in the distance there. Yeah. As I mentioned, I owned a studio, which I sold just a few years ago, but that was my primary creative space for the better part of 20 years. And now my studio is in my house and I love it. It's just absolutely wonderful. I can, you know, make coffee, come up here and work and have all the time I need, which is great. So... You get to do something I don't do, which is interact with people who are, are we past Gen Z at this point? I don't know what uh, the, <laughs> the generation of college kids, what designation they fall under. Yeah, I still think I would still put them in Gen Z, but I okay. think we're approaching in a few years here, what I would say is a demarcation line. Yeah. Sure. Hey, and. I got to ask what the experience is like interacting with 18 to 22 year olds on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, the first thing is it's always, it's always a revitalizing process when you're with people that have open minds, fresh ideas are open to learning. It's interesting to me. Somebody once told me that the longer people go in their life without learning, without growing, they get stuck in ideas and you'll just start noticing they just land at a certain point and they just never move from there or something. And I feel like when you're with people that are young and they're just so eager to learn and they're so enthusiastic and the cynicism has not hit them yet and the no's and the I can'ts have not hit them yet. And so there's all this opportunity to help them to really develop an infrastructure for not just success, but also just to understand how to operate as a human, how to operate creatively. And to me, that's the best thing, you know? And it's also, it challenges me to grow because, you know, I remember what it was like to teach millennials and that was a whole different subset. And then there was a whole group of people in the millennial set that went through a a lot, like with the great recession and then coming out of that into a different era. And now this generation that has gone through I think about this frequently that people of my age have very little connection to the life experience that this generation has gone through. 
the way that their social lives are disrupted, COVID, the place that our country is in right now, politically, the threat of climate crisis, the advent of a technology, artificial intelligence that stands to to reshape the world. And I'm just like, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes, 100%. (laughs) There's so much shit that I just did not have to deal with. And people of my age, I never thought about, you know, that, that they have to think about. I mean, we had the threat of a nuclear war, but I wasn't thinking about, oh, wow, the existential crisis of humanity with the natural world is a real consideration. Mm-hmm. So far in the future. And so I don't know, I, I guess I mentioned this because it also just forces me to really be more empathetic and not to just lean on my understanding of, oh, that's not how it was when I was young. The world was not the same when I was growing up primarily through the 80s and then going into college in the early 90s, totally different. And so it forces me to have a context shift in my own understanding where I'm looking at them and accepting them for the world that they grew up in and not where I did. So it helps me to keep a fresh perspective. It forces me to, or else I feel like you kind of lose touch. Yeah. I think you're right. It is really striking right? Because you and I are probably about the same age. And to I grew up in a world, well, before camera phones, before smartphones, before everyone had a laptop, before 9-11, before all of these things. Mm-hmm. And to have a generation grow up in this markedly different world, and I don't think enough people do take into account that the way they experience life is 180 degrees different from the way that we experienced life. And yes. to an extent, even though we come from the same generation, you and I probably experienced life in different ways. So it's kind of recognizing the unique voyage that everybody goes on. Full stop. Totally agree. Yeah. And it's not just generational. It's all manner of factors with people where as a teacher, I have to teach to everybody. I rather, I aspire to teach to everybody equally. But if I'm going to do that, I can't teach equally. I have to teach in a way that speaks to everybody where they are in their own life experiences. And that is the challenge of being a teacher, or in my case, a professor. I wonder if it's easier to take that unique approach as a college professor than it would be as a public elementary school or junior high school or high school teacher. Again, maybe I'm thinking about my own experience in New York City where there are cattle calls, right? Like, you know, 35 kids in a class, you can't spend time on each individual person. But I wonder if the experience gets a little bit more tailored as you move up the academic ranks. Yeah. I mean, I can only look at K through 12 instructors from a distance. I've never taught in any of those grades, but I can only imagine. I don't think I couldn't do it. I I think to your point, Mike, it's like the the rigidity, the pressure of the tests to <laughs> to prove that you're doing what you need to do to hire authorities like the state and and just that you're right. There is less room, much less room to tailor things. And in my experience with teaching in university, there's a lot more freedom you have. To, to do that and to really have some malleability in how you're delivering content. And in my case, teaching to the music industry, which is such an inherently volatile place, in some ways, I can't just teach from the classroom. And I have this thing I just shared again this morning with somebody, but if you want to learn wilderness survival, you have to get out of the classroom at some point. You can't just teach theory about <laughs> dealing with things in the woods. You got to go out. And so that's why a lot of what I do I t- do classes where I take students to other cities. I take students to South by Southwest in about four weeks. We're going to get on a plane and go spend three days with one of my heroes, Steve Albini at Electrical Audio and 30th anniversary of In Utero, shout out. But like guys made, I mean, Nevada one subset of the bands he's worked with that have been influential for me. So sharing in those experiences too, there's something that happens when you're yeah, I'm facilitating it, but we're also side by side in a way in terms of coming in together to be a part of in somebody else's house, as it were. Right, right. Do 
I'm going to try to phrase this question properly. What do you get out of your kids? I mean, it's got to be a situation where you learn as much from them or you learn something from them in, in, in exchange for them learning from you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of it for me is like their perspective is giving me a new way of looking at what I'm teaching. Usually it's like they'll see it from a different angle that I can't see because of any number of reasons. But that exchange is usually really helpful for me. It keeps me sharp. You know, my students are really smart. They're <laughs> insightful and they don't have a problem calling out bullshit. And my bullshit tolerance level is pretty small as it is. So I try to <laughs> deliver things not crassly, but also honestly and in, in a sober way. I mean, whenever I bring in guest speakers or at the summit, I'll occasionally have speakers say, hey, can I be honest? Because I really don't want to step on their dreams, but they need to know that this is a really brutal industry. And I, that is not an infrequent occurrence where someone's like, I know you all want to do this, but it's really hard. And I'm struggling. And people are struggling in this space. I think you could probably say the same thing for folks that are in Hollywood, I get that as well. I was just out in LA and talking to people and you know they're dealing with the streaming wars, they're dealing with strikes, they're dealing with AI consolidation. It's not an easy place, but it's like you follow, the heart wants what the heart wants. And if that's what you're drawn <laughs> towards, I'm not gonna talk somebody out of it, but the analogy I always share is the ocean is an inherently volatile, dangerous place. Mm. But do you wanna be a sailor? Okay, well, I can't change the nature of the ocean. However, I can prepare you to be a good, Sailor, I can prepare you to be somebody that can understand the dynamics, how to you know deal with certain things, how to understand the nature of how everything's working for the most part, and what changes are happening all the time. It's like Will Price, a former economist of Spotify, has this thing where he's like, as soon as you understand the music industry, it's changed. I can't change that fact, but if you can roll with that, and the passion is there, passion has to be there. That's the number one thing. This isn't the most important thing. At least when you start, I think you have to tailor that as you mature and get older and you start having relationships that are <laughs> meaningful or having kids. You do have to temper that. But if that doesn't drive you, then you, to, that's not the rocket fuel at the beginning of your career. It's going to be a really, really tough road. I think it's an, it's an interesting needle to thread. The fact that the music industry is such a tough industry and it demands a lot out of you. And it's also a very sexy industry. And I think a lot of people kind of get drawn in by the proximity to talent and yeah. the possibility of being the next mogul or, or whatever it is, and maybe don't totally realize the toll it's going to take. And it mm -hmm. is a hard discussion to have where it's like, <clears throat> yeah, you can get this, this, and this, but you can also get like this, this, and this taken away from you at the same time. Oh and my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no safety that, net. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there really isn't one. So I want to work intentionality into this conversation. And how do you set an example? How do you model behavior? Well, I'll answer that in a second. Can I go back to something? I want to get your take on the industry in general. What's your experience been like navigating that and finding where your passion points have been either hit or driven you? I mean, practicality has driven me in a lot of cases. It's like, oh, I love music and I got to pay the bills. You know, when I started working in the music business, it was, I was working in a record store. And when I was a kid, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't really have a, an idea of what jobs in the music industry were. I knew you could work in a record store and sell music, or you could work for, a publication and write about music. And my background was in journalism. So at the same time I was applying to Tower Records and all these different places, I was dropping my clips off at the source and all these different magazines to try to get journalism work. Mm -hmm. And the journalism thing took a longer time to pan out. You know, the internet yeah. had to exist and blogs had to exist. And then I suddenly had a career as a journalist. But for me, being in the proximity of records, recorded music, and people coming in and wanting recorded music and the ability to have somebody walk in and be like, Mike, I trust you. Pick four things out for me to buy. And knowing that you were a tastemaker in that way was super awesome. The music industry is a lot different now. And I'm not 17 or 27. I'm 47. 
And I, I think that my, my ideals have changed. My relationship with music has changed. And I'm not really sure where that sits right now. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not as gung-ho, super mega enthusiastic. I feel like a lot of it is, is an algorithm game that I feel is like, why are we playing this game? So I have a lot of conflicted feelings because at the end of the day, I still I love music. Music is the thing I love more than anything in this world. I'm just not sure where I fit in the 2023, 2024 music industry, unless I'm working for a catalog label, putting out REM reissues or something like that. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, I get that. And it's like you said, you have to kind of keep finding your place as the industry changes and people coming in accept that as normal, but folks in a different generation is so abnormal and so alien. Yeah, it is a, a strange concept for people of our generation and older to have so much tumult uh, yeah. in the industry and have it like every month it's something different. Totally. I totally yeah. feel that. Yeah. So there are lanes for me to, to, to go in. I mean, look, we just came from a conference in L.A. where we were talking about wellness and building your own personal brand in the music industry. So yeah. there are possibilities. Just a matter of looking for the lanes that are open to you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, side note on that, I think that to your point, it's not the entire picture. So I want to preface that this before I say it, but I do think that in some ways, money and the ability to make money in the industry is directly correlated with wellness. That is your ability to have health insurance, your ability to pay your bills and not live hand to mouth or month to month indefinitely, or this glorification of hustle culture. It's like, yes, sprinting to a point, but you can't live an indefinite sprint. That leads to burnout, right? And yeah, you want to diversify and I do the same thing. And that's not that, but it's like, man, there is something about finding ways to like, I like what you said, being pragmatic to stabilize so that you're not constantly spinning and you can be present for people and you can actually go deep in projects or go deep in relationships. Because um, at the end of the day, there are a million things more important. Even if you love music and you are super passionate about it, at the end of the day, there have to be things that are more yes. important to you than music. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. So circling back, <laughs> thank, the, you, thank you for the detour. I, I'm happy. I, I <laughs> love detours. So, um, but circling back to the int- intention, intentionality piece, again, you are a role model. You're a professor. You're a, a, an authority figure. How do you model the behavior you'd like to see in, not even in just the people you teach, but in the people around you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think in general, zooming out from just my role, because being a teacher is a role, right? I think more about what kind of person do I want to be and what kind of a person I want to be to my wife, to my children, to my family, to my friends, to those that I work with, my colleagues, to my students, the people I, I know tangentially, the people I don't know. So the overarching thing for me is always thinking about character. And I'm a big believer that you don't just act good to people. It comes out of who you are. And you either hone that over the years, like a discipline or an exercise routine of this is a practice I'm going to do, not necessarily because it feels the best, but because I think it's going to be the right thing, the good thing. And the more you do that, it's like you start thinking more about other people and not just yourself. And I I get this wrong all the time, but I think the more that we as people make a practice of taking our eyes off of ourselves and thinking about how can I build this person up? The strange thing happens where you find yourself finding good things out of that interaction because you see change around you. You see that you're impacting people. So I think it's a life principle for me of thinking about other people. How can I be intentional to where it's appropriate, be of assistance, where I can do good, and where I'm able to to bring change. And 
with my students, that's the biggest return on investment is I'll have students who come back and tell me how much I meant to them or what I did. Think And the, the best thing about this to me, you're just like throwing seed around, you know, and then things grow around you and you're like, I didn't even realize that that happened. That was because mm. of me. You forget about it. This happens to me all the time. And this isn't a brag. It surprises me because people say, this thing you said to me, this just happened to me. I'm, I just got on the, the board for a great organization here in town called it's Stewart's Opera House is the parent organization, but they run one of the biggest music festivals in the area. And all about doing great arts education in one of the poorest counties of Ohio. Like, they just do amazing stuff. And it's an incredible community. And one of them was like, my daughter was in your class and she was going through a very hard time. And she just told me recently that you took time after class to ask her how she was doing and check in with her. And this parent started tearing up. This must have happened like seven years ago. I mean, I know it happened. I kind of remember it, but I kind of don't. But it's just like, if it's a practice, you don't have to get caught up in each situation. It's just coming out of who you are. And so I think being intentional to your character is where I was going with this. I think it's really important. If it's all about circumstance or what was the result, that's just not the way to go because results are going to vary. You can't control the results, but you can control mm. your character. And I've been consistently surprised about how that's returned back to me from students. I guess the other thing is I'm intentional to remember that people are at a, a naive stage. And actually, I'm going to talk about this in my commencement speech, so spoiler alert, but not, I think that being naive is actually a superpower. And if I look back to the best and biggest decisions and the biggest risks I took, looking back, I'm like, no way would I do that again. However, at the time, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be, so I went for it. Or I think now I couldn't go through that again. But when you're before it, you have nothing but, oh, you think it's going to be something else. So being naive helps you to take those risks. And so when I look at a student and I'm like, not look at them as being ignorant, but they're just further behind in their career. One of my advantages is I've had more time and that's something they're not going to be able to catch up on. I've just had too much more life experience. It doesn't mean that one day they're not going to be smarter or wiser or whatever than me, but with the benefit of time, I can meet them where they are and hopefully see their same potential to move forward. I've had this happen many times where someone, I was like, that person, I can't see where they're going to go. Some of them have become... <laughs> Some of the most famous people out of our program. <laughs> and I just laugh because it's like, you have no idea. The most understated people or somebody that you're like, just they weren't the typical student. But then when you think about it, it's like, well, that's exactly right. The non-typical, non-conforming person is the one that breaks through as an artist or as a creative because that's who they are. I'm rambling a bit, but that's what no. I mean. Being intentional with those people <clears throat> to see is them where they are. Is is yeah. that a practice? Is that something that always clicked for you? Is it something you had to learn? I Yeah, I had to learn for sure. And I had to practice every day. I try to get a mindset for that. I walk to work every day. I'm really fortunate that I live near campus. So I don't really drive much locally. <clears throat> so when I walk to work, that's kind of my time to get centered. And one of the things I do is I have a practice where I think through my day. I will think about who I'm going to be interacting with. In some ways, I'll release things and even in prayer and think about how can I be intentional and I'll actually think through my schedule, the people I'm going to interact with. And also some people that I know are just going through some shit and realizing that everybody's got a battle they're dealing with right now. So you, what you're seeing with people, especially nowadays, is just only the tip of the iceberg for what there is really going on. And so it's like understanding that I need to come into some situations and be more, more empathetic, more allowing, because internally I can get very reactive or I can get judgmental, but instead to remain open and understand what I'm feeling from them is not them necessarily. Like they're going through a lot and that's impacting them, you know? And so, yeah, I try to make it like kind of daily practice to think through those things. That's pretty, what's the word I'm looking for? It's pretty advanced. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Only advanced because I've had advanced experiences in failure. <laughs> I mean, I, <clears throat> that, that's probably how it works, though. You learn from fucking up. Yeah, that's right, Mike. And also, I feel like you probably experience the same thing. You get around somebody that really influences you. Or you get around people that are really good leaders. And then you get around people that are really bad leaders or people that are in positions of power or authority. Or just peers where you're like, I don't want to be like that. 
I feel like each person gets these examples and they're like, whatever I'm feeling from this person or that vibe, I want to be more like that. It's been an embarrassment of riches for how many great people. And I don't mean wealthy people. I don't mean like famous people. I mean, just really good people in my life that have helped me and have put time into me like mentors. That's the game, man. Mentorship is so, so absolutely important. And there isn't an age limit on, yep. on mentorship. You could be 65 years old and still need a mentor. I've preached that for, for ages. It's so important. That's right on. And I think too, especially for men, I mean, the data is there right now. There's a crisis of loneliness in the United States for men. So the, the statistics are insane. It's like one in seven men can't name a friend. I'm going to mess this up in this podcast. It's okay. This study just came out. There's two stats. One in seven men have no close friends. There was another part of this that I thought was even more. Oh, it's one in seven men and one in 10 women have no friends. And the data is that that's more dangerous for you than smoking the equivalent of 15 cigarettes a day. Because we're social creatures, and especially men have uh, have this propensity to retract and to not be vulnerable or to see vulnerability as a weakness. And so that is another thing that's on my radar right now is, it's weird. I feel like I'm of two minds. I have a real passion to empower my women, my non-binary students to succeed and to break through and to help them to shatter ceilings in their professional careers. But then I also have this thing for the men in my life who are, who I feel like the the models aren't there. It's like there's not a model of leadership or something. I don't know how how to quite articulate it without it sounding diminutive. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, That is what I try to put across with this entire podcast. It's like, dudes, we need help. And it's not to say that women don't, that our non-binary friends don't, but you know, I see it when I talk to people, when I interact with people online, there is this incredible loneliness, frustration, which if someone, if people don't reach out with warmth and love, it could go super far to the left and then turn into some other shit. Yeah. But, oh yeah. But it, a lot of it is based on these, these old rules these old standards which say you can't be vulnerable, whatever. And I'm assuming you see more of that in Ohio than I do in New York, although I could just be a liberal East Coast elite saying that. <laughs> yeah, I think in certain communities, there's maybe more expression of that. I mean, there there is a real warmth to Midwest folks, but I do feel like for my male students, I can, and this is not just me getting older, I I can see people are just not connecting. I think it's part of it is what happened with the pandemic. That, I think that just exacerbated a problem. But I think that the amount of what social networks have done, and these, the data backs up what I'm sharing here, so it's not known, but I think that the way that people have been rewired in terms of like, oh, I, I have a, how many number of friends, but really it's just numbers. They don't have anybody they can go deep with. I'm talking about the intentionality thing. That's the other thing for me. Like I'm very intentional to spend consistent time within a month. Maybe it's once every two weeks or three weeks, but I have a certain number of very close male friends that I can go very deep with, be very vulnerable, share my shit, have, you know, encouragement with each other that I spend time with intentionally. And that have nothing to do with academia, have nothing to do with my job. They all are different. They do different things. They're different age ranges. But that is probably the really important piece of it. You need people in your life to call you out that you're not going to feel threatened by that, but know that they have your back. But that also means they have your back. They don't want to see you get into something or go down a road that's going to be destructive. And especially as I've gone through challenges in my own life, some very difficult, those relationships, I mean, this isn't hyperbole, but they really not only supported me, but in some ways they saved me from, you know, I can't imagine what it would have been like to go through some things had I not had very close male friends. And what makes me shudder is I think of a lot of people I know that like the statistic, 
they don't really have close friends. And it is a certainty that all of us will suffer at some point. Some, unfortunately, more than others. We need each other. And we're all going to lose the people in our lives one by one. That's just the nature of things. And I don't want to get super morbid here, but no. I think it's into like, we need support. And men need other men, especially. So how did you cultivate that? Yeah, for me, it was kind of modeled to me when I was in high school and then when I was in college. I had really good friends, and I also was a part of a faith community that was really supportive, that <laughs> modeled character, that modeled relationships, modeled healthy relationships. I'll give you a good example. I, I talk to some of my friends, my close friends, about this all the time. Like, you are really hard pressed to find where people go through conflict resolution training. And what I mean is something happens and you understand like, okay, there is a way we can go about resolving this where it doesn't become you versus me, where we attack each other, where if you're at fault, you can step back in humility and be like, you know what? I made a mistake. You learn how to own it, apologize, and then move on. And then the relationship's good and you move on. I meet so few people that understand that that's not only possible, but it's actually a good way of living. I mean, you probably know people that hold on to things, slights that are decades old. And it's like, well, I want to be careful here and how far I go with this. Because my bigger principle is learning how as a consistent practice with people in your life to not just let things build up and become bitter. I guess that's where mm -hmm. I'm going with this. It's like, you can actually resolve things or at least have a process for knowing, okay, I did everything I can do and I can let go. And that was really modeled to me, how to be in community, how to be in relationships. That stuff was modeled to me quite a bit by a lot of mentors. And I got some really good experience with that. And that served me really well in my creative life, in my professional life as a creative and also I would say, in dealing with folks in my position at the university. I don't know, Mike, what, what do you feel like when you, do you feel the same thing when you're interacting with folks? How do you deal with the community that you're involved with? I mean, that's kind of a wide question. I definitely know that there is a need for connection out there. And you brought up a really, really good point about the numbers being numbers. I, I think about that a lot. I'm like, oh, I've got all these people on social media. I have tons of friends. And I think maybe because I'm a little older, a lot of those relationships have actually turned into real life friendships. That's great. Um, however, that may not be the case for a lot of other people who are just kind of interacting with people online to slide a quick DM and whatever, and they're not actually speaking to looking at, hugging, touching, yeah. interacting in a 3D way with these people. And I think a lot of people get caught up in that vortex and are missing that 3D experience, but don't know that they're missing it necessarily. So yeah. they're, they're trying to figure out what's wrong there. And look, good relationships are built on trust and honesty and consistency. And it's something that I I'm still working on. It's funny you mentioned holding on to grudges because I think I do that. I, I'm less and less again as I get older and become a little bit more knowledgeable about myself, but that's a journey that I'm still on. But I, I'm really trying as I get older to not uh, crustify, to not uh, yeah. uh, become completely embittered and, and harden myself off to the world because I do realize I 100% that I need people and I think most of us need people. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, and although it is hard, I'm not a woman. I can't say whether it's hard or easy for women to say that they need people beyond their romantic partner or parent or child or whatever. But it is super hard for dudes to to admit that. And socialization, stigma, all that stuff comes up. And again, when we have these needs and they're not met or they're not dealt with in a healthy way. That's unfortunately when we have shit like school shootings and all of these crazy things that happen. It's all of this pent up 
aggression, anger, frustration, pain, that it, it's past the point where it can come out constructively. Yeah. And I think it goes the opposite direction, too. I think if violence is the explosion, there's an implosion that happens with men where they just deteriorate slowly and they lose the ability to know how to connect or they choose to withdraw. And then it's like, I find with even things that feel, uh, I don't want to say normal, but like I'll notice like things like when I say younger men, late teens, early 20s, they have a hard time looking me in the eye when they talk. Or any Gen Z is afraid to answer the phone. It's like you just never Look, call. It's I'm like Gen you text. X and I hate answering the phone. So <laughs> yeah, it's texting. But it's like, but it's like how you interact with people in a face-to-face human. Like we're having a conversation. I've just noticed that the current generation coming up, that's much more challenging for them. I mean, I was a shy kid to some extent, but I think it's more until the context of what they've grown up in. Having a smart, having a supercomputer in their pocket, growing up on social networks, having a pandemic that ripped their social lives apart. It makes sense to me, but, but nonetheless, it's like, well, how do we get into a place where, all right, let's learn how to engage with one another, you know, and, and have real conversations. Cause I still am a firm believer that conversation person to person is where the transformation happens. That's where community, right. community, that's where the transformation happens with people. That's why I still love in-person classes and the exchange of energy and being with people. To me, that's where the lightning happens. Do you miss being in a band? (laughs) Yes and no. I mean, I played in a lot of bands, but do I miss lugging my gear, setting up, playing, or, you know, there's logistical things. I don't miss that. What I do miss is I miss being with working with other people i miss being with a group of people that are each really good at their thing each very passionate and driven when that happens and everybody starts gelling around that it's like something independent but interrelated to everybody comes into life that's what i miss it's an exchange of energy and it's creativity that's what i miss full stop yeah that makes sense. You are a father of three. That's right. What is one thing that you have taught your kids that you wish you'd have been taught as a kid? <laughs> That's a good question. I think one thing for them that I've really instilled is not that my parents didn't tell me to go after my dreams um, and not that that they didn't support me because they did. But I think for my kids, I've just tried to instill with them just an openness to all possibilities, to try to work really hard and to just go for the things that you want. And Again, this isn't a knock on my parents by any stretch, because again, they were very supportive. I think it's just more like when I was growing up, it's like you go to school, you do this, you choose this. This means this. Everything was very laid out. When you graduate, here's what you should do and here's what you don't do. And when I went the opposite direction, I think about as a parent, I probably would be like, what are you doing? Because I just didn't want to necessarily go the, the route that I was expected to go. I just went a completely different direction. And for my kids, I, I, I want them to be able to trust that process. It's okay if it's zigzagged, it's all over the place. But if you're, if you're following what you want and your passions and you're going after what you can see, then I, that's all I want. I've got your back. You're good. And my middle son right now is in LA and he wants to be a cinematographer. And we took this trip this summer in Utah and... At first, we have a semester in LA program. So he did that. He had a very successful internship. And he was like, I'm going to move to LA. So then when he graduated, we did this nine-day hiking trip through the five major parks, national parks in Utah. And we hiked a lot. We were hiking like 10 hours a day together. So we talked a lot. And it was great. And he was really wondering, should I do this? Should I not? And my bent was like, you should go for it. But I just like gave him the space to work it out. He made a decision in the summer to go to LA, which he did. And for a month, nothing. Of course, the strikes are going on, but 
through that time, it's like, you got to trust the process. Just keep going, keep making connections. Just don't get hung up on results right now. You just need to keep being faithful to do what you can. And then I think it was four or five weeks after that, he landed his first gig on a film set and he got another PA thing. He got a part-time job, his internship. He just got another film set gig. So now it's starting to happen. And so that's the thing that I try and sell my kids is you just keep going and don't worry about results at, at first. You just keep driving and keep persevering. Yeah. Nice. I like trust the process. Yeah. Uh, what, what centers you? Hmm. Like if you're, you're walking to work, it's super cold outside, you're annoyed, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, what puts Josh back into his center? Yeah. Well, I think just an immediate thing is breathing. I'm a big fan of meditation. Meditation practice has been very helpful for me to center, to get back to feeling the breath coming in, feeling the breath coming out letting time be as it is and not feeling like you are your thoughts. That's a big thing with me. Like your thoughts are passing through. How do you get centered in the moment with breathing? As I mentioned, faith is a part of my life. So I can center on God. I can center on the things that I feel like the principles that I want to lock onto in terms of how I want to operate as a posture of goodness, as a posture of trying to, uh, I mean, this sounds really flowery, but if you unpack it, it's really about principles of respect. And that is approaching my relationships with, and my responsibilities with love, uh, which I would peel that back and see things like dedication, care, gentleness, kindness, humility, thoughtfulness, respect for people, self-control not flipping out when I get bad news is a sign of love and respect to my colleagues. If they tell me something that I disagree with, being open, like all these things that centers me. And also it's not all about me, you know? I mean, I can get very selfish. I can get very driven. I am very driven. I get very passionate, which is an Italian I've learned can come off like I'm angry, <laughs> but I'm not, you know, that's a cultural thing. I like when people get up in the grill a bit and you're kind of like, I'm not pissed at you. This is how we work shit out. This is how iron sharpening iron right now. We're, we're getting somewhere. Right. Great songwriters get great in partners because one has an idea, one wants to get better and they bicker. But as they're doing that, they're elevating each other. And there's a principle there, that kind of thing. I also think that I have a mindset of, I do believe that people in society can progress. Like we can make each other better. I don't have a retractable mindset in that way. I've never had that. I always feel like there's always vision for the way ahead. My running practice has always helped me exercise in that way has been like a real gift of, yeah, I feel good. My body feels good. But for my mind, it helps me to see beyond the moment into what could be. I don't know a good way to explain that. It's just a thing that happens with my mindset. It helps me to get out of the present and to feel like, all right, there's something different. We can go somewhere new. So I'm, I don't know, kind of like a solutions mindset or something. It's a pretty good way of explaining it. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's how Josh gets centered, Mike. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I'm taking mental notes for myself. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I guess the other thing for me is creating and being creative, music. That's kind of my great point of meditation and being in process. You know what one writer calls the flow state. It's like I can get into a flow state and I lose time. Like when I was producing bands, I could be in the studio for 12 hours and it felt like nothing. And we've all been at jobs where it's like, shit, only five minutes have gone by. Mm -hmm. But I could be in the studio again for half a day and it would be like nothing. The only reason I know is because either I have to go to the bathroom or I have to eat. I could stay up till two in the morning working and be like, oh, I'm good. Like, this is great. I'm in a zone. Or when you're with people, when it's all the exchange of energy we're talking about. Thank you so much, Josh, for sharing your time and your wisdom and your energy with us. Greatly appreciate it. And I just referred to me as us. Well, no, I meant the listeners too. Us. So that made sense. <laughs> if you want to follow Josh online, you can follow him on Instagram, N-J-A-N-T-O. Um, I'm not sure what the N stands for, but the J-N-T-O obviously is his name. 
So follow him there. And uh, Ohio uh, University has a music industry summit. Uh, it's popping off this year in April. Uh, if you would like to be a part of that or contribute to it or be a sponsor or anything like that, please go to www.ohio.edu slash music-industry-summit. Once again, www.ohio.edu slash music-industry-summit. Josh, once again, thank you very much. I look forward to catching up again real soon. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool ass sticker, lots of stuff. Once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod. Quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace